Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 2, the first 12 verses. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among all the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd to my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, uh, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. This Sunday we celebrate the Epiphany. Yesterday was the Feast of the Epiphany. And on the liturgical calendar, it's a time in the year when we stop and reflect on how God's intentions from the beginning were to extend his saving grace to every nation. He called and chose the Hebrews so that from that nation, the love and the grace of God would flow out to every nation. And of course, the people of God throughout the chronicles of the Old Testament continually turn from God and God comes himself to do what we could not do. And that is to get the blessing of his grace, of his forgiveness, of being reunited to him, finding a true sense of identity and stability in, the, in our souls uh, by coming to this saving re, uh, reunion with our God, with our creator God. Jesus comes to do it. And maybe you're visiting today and you're thinking, what are we doing? Christmas was two weeks ago, so why are we back in this text now? And actually, the nativity scenes that you are familiar with are a little bit misleading because the wise men are in those nativity scenes, but uh, the art has not been helpful uh, because this takes place around two to three years after the birth of Christ. And uh, so it can be a little confusing when the nativity scenes that we have are a little like a confusing X-Men timeline situation and everything seems to be happening when it's not happening. Some people are very orthodox in the way that they handle their nativity scenes. So they'll set up the nativity scene for Christmas, but they put the wise men on the other end of the house. And then every day towards Christmas, they just kind of, you know, they're marching. And uh, until... So today, if you're being really biblical about it, the wise men are like sitting with the rest of your nativity scene at home this morning. I don't know if anybody did that. But that, that would be one way, to do, one, one way to do it. But at any rate, they, they can be a little confusing as well. You know, some nativity scenes have the drummer boy there uh, because music has... Some nativity scenes are like multiverse mashups and Santa's giving gifts to baby Jesus. Uh, some nativity scenes seem to forget where in the world 
literally this took place and baby Jesus looks like Caillou and Joseph looks like <laughs> Obi-Wan and that's the wrong nativity set. They look like that. Just trying to help you out. So we go to this text because it reminds us of God's intention and he does this saving work by giving an epiphany of grace to uh, these magi. So this morning I want us to explore this text and the implications of this by looking at a few things. Firstly, the clash of thrones. Secondly, the epiphany of grace. And then lastly, the ministry of reconciliation. First, this clash of thrones. This news that the king has come provoked two significantly different reactions. The Magi worshipped at Christ's throne. Herod protects his throne. The Magi bent their knee to Christ's lordship. Herod rejects Christ's lordship in order to maintain his lordship. And to borrow from uh, theologian N.T. Wright, it might be helpful for us to make sure not only that we're keeping Christ in Christmas, but also that we keep Herod in Christmas. Because by keeping Herod in Christmas, it humbles us in such a way that we can stop and consider, what is my response to Jesus? What is my response to his lordship? Is there a desire in my life to bend my knee and live a life of flourishing to the king? Or am I, in ways that I would rather not confess, a little bit like Herod, wanting to protect my own throne? In verse 2, the Magi ask Herod this terrifying question. They say, where's the one born king? And he is the king. So that's a pretty staggering question. It's unavoidably political. Our faith is unavoidably political. I don't, I don't mean political in, in, in the popular Western partisan way of being political to say, here's our team, and we've picked a couple scripture verses that seem to match with some of the things that our political team is doing, and so therefore, this is Jesus' team, and all the Christians should vote for this team. That's absurd, because if we do our homework, we can find ways in which each political party can resemble in some ways Christian ethics, but it doesn't take us very long to find ways in which all of them are diametrically opposed to Christian ethics. And so we do our work as dual citizens, citizens of Canada and citizens of the kingdom of heaven to love our city and seek the good of our city and pray for our leaders and essentially give the government our taxes, but not give them our trust. And I don't mean that we live in a state of constant conspiracy and anger and vitriol and anxiety, I mean that we live in such a way that we recognize we already have a king. And therefore, we're not going to lose any sleep over what the government does because, frankly, this life is not all that there is and our lives are in the hands of our God. And so, therefore, we pray for those in politics. But our faith is unavoidably political precisely because if there is a king, that means there's a kingdom. And if there is a kingdom, that means the kingdom being the way of life. And if there is a way of life, then that means that there is a rule of law. And if there is a rule of law, then the question is, whose law? And on what basis should I allow that law to govern the way that I approach living my life? Thomas Aquinas, uh, a very well-known Christian philosopher, was very provocative on this point, where he said, actually, if the law contradicts God's law, it's not a binding law. And I'm not under any obligation to keep that law. And there are many ways in, in which, not that the Christians are like, yay, anarchy, this is what we've been waiting for. But rather that we say, actually, 
any, and you see it in the New Testament, when the government imposes a law, you will not speak in the name of Jesus Christ. It's, the apostles have a response. It's, it's a humble response. It's an educated response. It's a thoughtful response. And the response is, well, you, get, you need to decide. Uh, you've made this law that I can't speak uh, in his name. Uh, but we can't help but preach his name. And so they found all manner of covert ways to do that. But the way of not keeping the law always manifested in emulating the nature of Jesus Christ, which is loving your neighbor. So the not keeping of the law never manifested like, well, there is no law, and I'm now therefore doing things that are hurting my neighbor, that are incongruent with the ways of Jesus. This happens all the time. When I went to South Sudan, my visa did not say, preacher, minister of the Holy Scriptures, coming to deliver Bibles in the languages of the... Like, that's not what the visa said. But I didn't lose any sleep over a visa that said, I can't remember what it said, except something along education, because I was like, that's close. But I didn't lose any sleep over that. Some Christians are saying, tisk, tisk, you broke the law. I know, but their law is saying I can't preach the gospel in their country, but that law isn't binding because my God's law is that I'm to minister his gospel. So when I went there, I didn't wreak havoc. We were loving and caring for people in many practical ways, meeting practical human needs. And then we were able to offer them the good news of the message of God's love and his forgiveness for any who would wish to receive it. But this was all done in a spirit of service. So you see, our faith is inherently political in that sense. We have to live according to the wise guidance of God's word in all sorts of contexts where... His law is not shared. And we see this even in this question. Hey, where's the king? This incarnation of our God coming in this manner, in this way, it is life-changing. The message of Christmas is life-changing. The message of Easter, life-changing. The fact that God comes into our space and then declares that it's his space. The fact that life doesn't just end in a graveyard and darkness and death and that's the end of it. It's life-changing. It's Liberating, But before it's life-changing and before it's liberating, it's confronting. Because we have to deal with this business of being king. Of, because we're not king. And are we willing to bend our knee and worship the king? Verse 3 to 6 says that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The Greek word for troubled is, uh, means an intense crippling anxiety. It's a very strong word. He was having physical manifestations of crippling anxiety because of this news. Because somebody came to him and said, hey, king, where's the king? And it says all Jerusalem was, had that crippling anxiety with him. It doesn't mean, by the way, all Jerusalem as in every man, woman, and child in Jerusalem. It means Herod and everybody else who would benefit from keeping their positions of power were terrified. This is always the response of those who do not want to relinquish the throne. It's like there's implications for this, and it's disconcerting. It's confronting. And so Herod goes on to do these terrible things in order to keep his power. Right? There's this massacre of all these young, uh, young boys under the age of two. Right? He's trying to wipe out the Christ child. The historian Craig Blomberg, a New Testament historian, estimates that Bethlehem at that time would have had a population of around 300 to maybe 300 to 1,000 people. And so, by that estimation, this massacre was probably around 20 children. And that's one would be 
horrifying and abhorrent. But the fact that it's 20, it doesn't even show up in the history books. Some people have said, well, we can't find this in the history books, and therefore we're just going to toss out this, you know, the credibility of the Bible. But there are historians who say, well, you don't understand the reason why this massacre of 20 didn't hit the history books. It's because this was such a minor infraction for the kinds of things that Herod did. This is not going to hit his Instagram. There's just no way he's going to flex on this. This doesn't even come close to the kinds of things he was doing on a regular basis. Augustus, Caesar Augustus, had such frequent disputes with Herod that Blomberg recorded that Augustus uttered this very famous pun using two Greek words. The word for pig was peace, and the word for son is heos. So heos and heos, and he would say, it's safer to be Herod's heos than his heos. Safer to be his pig than his son, because this guy will just kill at will anyone who opposes him. It is truly scary what he was able to do to justify keeping his control. And on the surface, we're nothing like Herod. And on the surface, it's like, let's just move on. Why are we taking so much time going into this detail? Because if you lift the hood on Herod's sin, it's Adam's sin. It's your sin. It's my sin. It is the ability to justify all kinds of things when we are not willing to relinquish our throne. What kinds of things have you and I done in the name of just justifying our position? Of course, I'm using the extreme example here of Herod and the massacre of the innocents, and none of us have done anything like that. But how many relationships have we killed? How many, how many other ways has this manifested? Because this root problem of the coronation of the ego, this misappropriated inflation of self-love, the driving force behind all of our unloving, unmerciful acts, catalog of evils that we see in the world. When we dismiss the guidance of God's word in favor of our word, our wayward desires get executive powers, and then in those moments, things don't go well. And what Herod does is very beast-like. In the language of the Proverbs, when we were studying Proverbs in the summer, you'll remember this language of being beast-like or animalistic or less than human keeps coming up in the Proverbs because it's a way of saying that we're just led around by our desires. And remember, this was prophesied I'll remind you, if you go back to the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, there's this confusing poetry where all these beasts are rising up and one beast is uglier than the next. And each concessive beast is more ugly and terrifying than the next one. And these are political kingdoms. And so Herod and Rome, they're just in line of this succession of ugly beasts that keep rising and to destroy the redemptive plan of God's uh, Christ coming to reunite us with our creator. This plan of darkness to bring this destruction. First it was Babylon, and after Babylon it was Persia, and after Persia it was, it was uh, uh, Alexander the Great and Greek, the, the Greeks, and, then it, and now it's Rome. And we arrive in this, this time where Herod could justify anything, and if we look close enough we see the same thing is at work in the world today, and can even be at work in our own hearts. And this, of course, everything I'm saying is on a collision course with the prevailing conversation of our age, which is, don't let anybody dare tell you somebody belongs on the throne. Don't let some preacher, some terrible institution called the church, don't let any institution tell you how to live your life. Let us tell you how to live, whoever that, that voice is. This, in, a great, in a great stroke of irony, destroying universal truth claims and then creating other universal truth claims and saying these are the right ones. Don't let anybody tell you that. You belong on the throne. This is the number one undercurrent of 
a lot of the prevailing ideology today. Not to live a life of worship, but to center around the self. In the 5th century, there is a North African theologian uh, named Augustine. And in his work, The City of God, 22 volumes, he's looking at Roman culture and he's expounding upon the ways in which there's the city of God and there's the city of man and how these things are so different. And in book 14, he starts to contrast poetically how in the city of God, people are ruled by the love of God. And in the city of man, people are ruled by the love of ruling. And leaders always abuse power when the goal is hoarding power. True for Herod, true for today. If the goal is amassing power, you're, on, you're, you're destined to abuse that power. And then the leadership teams that's, that surround those leaders are complicit in the injustice because they are intoxicated with the idea of climbing the ladder to power or keeping their own power or doing what they need to do to stay in the good graces of those who have power or being intimidated by those who have power. So when you consider the temptations of Christ, all of the temptations of Christ are ways of using his power to benefit himself. And Christ's use of power is the very opposite, the upside-down gospel of the whole world's use of power, which is, no, I will lay my power down. The use of power is to benefit those under whom I have been given authority and power. And so this rejection of Christ by those in power at the beginning of his life, it foreshadows the rejection at the end of his life. Let's move on to this epiphany of grace. So the Magi come. They were political advisors and mystics, really. They had a lot of uh, civic responsibility, and they they were educated people. They practiced scientific astronomical observation because they're studying the stars. But they, they fused that astronomical work with astrological speculation. And they were seeking the divines. And they clearly knew the Hebrew scriptures, even though they weren't worshippers, because that's how they came and said, where's the king? And so Herod says, I don't know what you're talking about. And so everybody goes and studies the scriptures, and they come back with the prophecy. So these magi are not worshippers of God. And the reason why this is so significant is because this, the lengths that God goes to are cosmic. And we need to see this. That the lengths that God has always gone to, to draw men and women from every culture, every tribe, every tongue, across this globe, are cosmic. The lengths of His mercy, the lengths of His grace. So they see this star, and nobody, there's theories on the star, like scientific theories around what could, it, what could they have seen. Some say comets, some say celestial bodies. Of course, it could have been completely divine. I mean, that's possible. David uh, Hughes is the professor of astronomy at the University of Sheffield. And one of his hypotheses is that it was this conjunction of of Saturn and Jupiter that happened three times in in the span of a few years that created the, the appearance of a very bright star that that conjunction year after year after year for two to three years had the appearance of movement. It's a theory. We don't know. But what is amazing is that whatever God did, however God did it, he, 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 he wound the cosmos up like a glorious timepiece so that at the right time in human history, he would draw these men who aren't even worshipping him 
the lengths that he goes to in his saving grace, truly majestic. Those who are far from God, not worshiping God, given this epiphany of the saving grace of God, this king is born. He's still doing that today. He's still doing it, drawing the attention, bringing the consciousness to awareness, opening eyes, opening hearts. They say, we've come to worship him. And worship is what happens when you come down off the throne of your own smallness. They were people of means and influence and and academia of their time. They're people of power, people of means. Right? They're bringing gold. Like they're, they have a life, and it's a great life. But they come down off the smallest of their little thrones to worship at Christ's throne. Can you and I come off the smallness of our thrones, whatever they are, to center our lives in true worship so that we can find a true sense of peace and quiet as we are reunited with our Creator? Consider like God moving the cosmos like a majestic timepiece to catch the attention of these astronomers. How many tens of thousands of things have moved in your life that you're here worshiping Him today, resting in His grace? What, how, many, how many mistakes have you made that were, that were so catastrophic that you have no business being here worshiping His grace, and yet you're here worshiping His grace? Maybe you're exploring Christian faith today and you're not worshiping per se, but you're here because you have questions and you're on a bit of a journey. But consider how many thousands and tens of thousands of things moved so that you're even here today hearing this. I mean, I'll tell you, you're here today because of French fries. I'll explain. I feel like that warrants some unpacking. The year was 1991. I'm in high school. There's French fries in the cafeteria. I get a job at Foodland, which is a dude land. And I buy, with my hard-earned money, these french fries, which were amazing. And I basically ate a lot of french fries from 1991 to 1994. Fast forward to 2005. I'm at a conference with teenagers in a stadium in Utica, New York. There's like 3,000 teenagers there. And one of the teenagers comes down and sits down beside me with french fries. And man, they just smelled exactly like the french fries from my cafeteria. I'm like, I gotta get some french fries. So I get up and I go. And on my way, I meet a guy in the hallway and his name is Mike Cervello. And he's running the conference and we become friends. And one thing leads to the other. And I start speaking at this conference for for these teenagers. And fast forward to 2010. I'm speaking at this conference in Utica, New York. The conference that I was at years ago, all because of the French fries. And I'm sitting down with Mike Cervello. And he says to me, Paul, I'm reading this book. It's messing with my theology. It's really like, it's just causing me to really struggle with the way that I'm teaching a lot of things. I think I'm getting a lot of stuff wrong. Have you heard of a guy named Tim Keller? I said, I never heard of him. He goes, I'm going to give you this book. And he gives me this book, Reason for God. And Susan reads it first. And she comes to me and she's like, we're not preaching the gospel. And I'm like, get thee behind me, Satan. I am preaching the gospel. I'm pretty good at it. I don't know if you noticed, but I'm in the stadium right now. Thousands of people hanging on every word that I say. I think I'm pretty darn good at this. So you can see I was ready for ministry, clearly. And that led to falling down a massive theological staircase as I read the book and realized I wasn't even close. Not only was I not even close, but I got partway through partway through that process and Susan was like I think one of us needs to go to seminary you and one thing leads to the next and 2015 we plant Redeemer and 2024 we're sitting here hearing this all because of French fries do you, do you see did you follow the thread you understand what I'm saying the thousands of things that God moved if I didn't get up to go get those French fries where would we be now you'd be all I'm not inflating my self importance you'd all be worshipping Jesus someplace else but just consider the cosmic working of the timepiece that God has at play in all of our lives to his glory and to his grace 
This is what he does with the Magi. This is the epiphany that he's continually offering so that we can come and worship. And worship, they say we've come to worship him. Worship involves singing and praying and confessing and celebrating it. But worship is ultimately centering. We sing because it serves centering. We pray because it serves centering. And the question is, what, am I, what are we centering around? What is that thing in your life that you wake up for, that you have convinced yourself, this is the gravitational pull. This is, this is why I am in orbit. It is this thing that is centering me. That is worship. And if we are not worshiping the God of all creation who has come and manifested in Christ in his glorious life and his atoning death and his divine resurrection, if we're not finding our center on him, whatever we've centered on, it's so small. It's too small. It's so fragile. We live life handcuffed to circumstance. And so this is what God does by giving this epiphany of grace to the Magi and to us like the Magi. And, you know, they continue to function as rulers and advisors after they leave. They come and worship Christ the King and they don't go, well, that was good. Back to studying the cosmos and back to seeing if there's other celestial. No, they, they went back and did their astronomy and did all their civic duties and led and ruled as Christ worshipers. They brought the worship of Christ to vocation and to life. And so do we as the unlikely worshipers. Who God's called. The final thing I'll say this morning is that we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. These magi, they were, they were so unlikely. And you and I, as we go into our city and we love our city, we love our families and our neighbors, we live these small local lives, just caring for our city, being a blessing in whatever office you happen to be working in, and all of the human exchanges that you get to have, just using your gifts for God's glory. Students on campus, same thing. Just loving your friends, doing your studies, using your gifts to God's glory. Not needing the career and the identity and the toys. Not needing any of it to name us and give us a name. We don't need the city of Waterloo to give us a name. We have, we have a name. We are his. We are God's children. And we are unqualified to decide who we think will respond to the message of the gospel. Because if there's one thing that this account of the Magi teaches us, it's that... God is a specialist in drawing unlikely worshipers. We are unlikely, the Magi are unlikely, and all the people that God is drawing to his saving grace throughout all time are unlikely. And it is quite possible that we look at the relationships in our life and we think, yeah, I don't know that I can really give a defense for the hope that I believe in Jesus because this person just seems so unlikely. You know, they just they got a lot of letters after their name, man. They're just so smart. They're just so educated. Well, aren't you? So, I, mean, there's, you are, I mean, there's people in here that describes you exactly. You're just as unlikely as they are. Some of you, that's not you at all. Street smart. Grew up in a different way. Did completely different school. The school of life. And you look at other people going through the school of life. And you're like, I don't know, man. I just don't think they're this kind of person. that It's just like, they've been through much. They've seen so much. They've been, I don't know. I know, but that's you. Yeah, but this person seems unlikely. Like they went to church as a kid. The church was a gong show. It was a total nightmare. And every time that they think about church, they, they, and that might be true, you know, and that's terrible. There's lots of institutions that don't reflect Christ. There's lots of preachers and pulpits that, whose lives don't reflect the nature of Jesus. But that's a failure of an institution. That's a failure of a man or a woman. That's not on Jesus. 
That's not who he is. He's never failed. Everybody is unlikely. So may God give us the boldness and the grace with, with humility to just give a defense for the hope that we enjoy in him. Everybody's unlikely. But God is, a, God is an unlikely specialist in drawing them to saving save faith. God isn't sending any more stars after the resurrection. The stars are not the lights of the world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. It's a pretty strong statement to make in Matthew 5, considering he's actually the light, the capital T, capital L, light of the world. But then he says to Anah, you're the light of the world. You're the city on the hill. He sends us. We have this ministry of reconciliation. So that according to 2 Corinthians 5, the old is gone. The new has come. The old throne is gone. The new throne has come. The old way of living, the old drives, the old compelling loves, the old vision, it's gone. The new has come. We're living into the new. We're living in the greater congruence of the new. And we've been reconciled to Christ so that through us, God continues to do his reconciliation. And he does it to others. You know, the star didn't showcase itself. The star, the, the star was pointing. We're not standing in spotlights. Hey, look at us. Come to Jesus. Look at the church. Look how great it is. What? No, that's not. Hey, look at me in my life. My... Now, there's an element of that that's true. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, but love, emulating love. But we're not pointing at ourselves. Neither was Paul. We're not in the spotlight. We're headlights. We're pointing to him, to the hope that we found in him. So may this gospel touch our hearts deeply. May we go into our city and share the goodness of God's grace as unlikely worshipers. Let's pray.